The goats were using the sheep as sweaters. <laughs> Episode 18 of the Anchor Me Farm podcast. I'm Brian. I'm Kara. And we have a guest. We do, live in person. Hi, my name is Sherry Talbot. I am the co-owner and operator of Saffron and Honey Homestead. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's my first podcast. So I'm very excited. Woo-hoo. We've had one guest before, but that was a Zoom call. This time, we're in the farm stand. Yes. In the farm shop, and we're recording in person. So she's going to be with us the whole time. It was a chance to like play with other people's goats. So you know that too. Yeah. I wasn't going to pass that. <laughs> and three sheep, because we now have three sheep. We do. We got Baby them doll this sheep. morning. They're not fans yet. Yeah, they're, they're very fussy. <laughs> they're doing the typical brand new animal thing. Like I just, I was with my mom this morning and now I'm in a totally different place. And who are all these other guys? How old are they, by the way? 10 weeks old. Ten, oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So I, I have no idea what it's going to be like to have sheep. So far, moving them around the farm is kind of like moving the ducks around the farm. I just kind of. Yeah, I have noticed that at least with mine, um, goats, as long as I start early, I can halter train them. Like most of my goats walk on a leash like a dog and they're actually, they're better behaved on a leash than my dog. Wow. There is, I do not, it does not matter how young I start there. I have no sheep that will walk on a lead. They will just lay down. <laughs> I have taken the babies. My husband has taken like the mother sheep to the other end of the yard. She will yell and call for the baby and nope, put a leash on it. Just lays down. It's like a cat. Wow. Just like we're having absolutely none of this. But can you can you shoo them around successfully? I mean, it's really faster and more efficient to just take a handful of grain and yell for them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's a good point. As opposed to shooing them, just go to where you want them to go, rattle the game grain container. Boom. They're very goaty sheep. They are they're not as food driven as most of my sheep. Hmm. I mean most of my goats. Um, what kind of sheep do you have? Um, they're soe. They are um, uh, an endangered wool sheep. They were the first wool sheep in history domesticated, and they are the last, as far as I know, they are the last wool sheep that still shed their wool. They're very primitive. Um, and they really do look like goats, and to a certain extent, they act like goats. Um, I, in fact, had a woman once argue with my husband for half an hour about whether or not they were goats. <laughs> He's like, I, I, I own them. Like, I'm pretty sure I know what they are. Right. <laughs> Um, but they're very small. Um, they will, they, they like grass, but they will also do the goat thing where they'll eat a lot of shrubs and they'll pull bark off things. And, oh, wow. Um, but they're an island sheep, uh, and they're from off the coast of Scotland. So with all the rain we've been getting, I get happier and happier all the time that we got Scottish sheep because they're just hanging out going, yeah, this is fine. <laughs> they don't care. They all they don't run care. away. And... <laughs> it's, it's interesting to see the goats poof up. In the winter, <clears throat> yeah, they they get their winter coat on. I guess the sheep are just gonna, the baby doll sheep are just gonna build, all the way through winter until they get sheared. I mean, I worry about them in the summer, but we can't shear them until yeah spring. So they're not a they're not a twice a year. No, she said once a year. Most of them are, I think, but soe are interesting. So they're normally born when the weather is still really cold. Hmm. And so they're actually born with this really heavy wool coat already in place. Oh, wow. And uh, we actually, we had a ram born this year that had already started to grow its horns when it came out. Ow. (laughs) Poor mama. I mean, they were tiny. They were just little nubs. Uh, And he was probably so big compared to her size that she didn't even really notice. But I was like, that's different. You actually, you don't have to gender check them. The males are born with these swirls on the top of their head where their horns will come in. Oh, really? uh, the males and the females are both horned, but the males have much thicker bases. Oh, wow. Oh, so as soon as you see the head, you so know what's going on. As soon as you see on. the head, you know, you know if it's a male or female. Yep. Hmm. So I guess we should talk about the kind of farm that you have. Yeah. Sure. Um, so we raise uh, pretty much all endangered heritage breed animals. Um, every animal we see, I mean, we have a couple of like meat turkeys and things like that, but otherwise, um, everything is on the livestock conservancy endangered list, uh, or the rare breed survival trust, which is the same equivalent, but in the UK, um, there are actually so few soe in the United States that we still have to register 
in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, so time differences are fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, but they, um, they actually now are being recognized by the Livestock Conservancy. Originally they weren't just because they were overseen elsewhere. Um, but the Livestock Conservancy has a program called Shave Them to Save Them, which is to encourage people to use fibers from endangered sheep. Um, and so they've been added to that list uh, for that program as of last year. So but what we, we just start getting into the heritage rare breeds? So the first thing we had were San Clemente Island goats, which are one of the rarest goat breeds in the world. Um, we, I always knew I wanted goats, um, like, I worked until I was like 35 to basically just have a house so I could raise goats, like that was my thing. <laughs> um, but I didn't know what I wanted for goats, and so I did a lot of research ahead of time. And I also knew I wanted to breed goats, but I did not want my neighbors to hate me. And there are <laughs> breeds of goats that can be real stinky. Yeah. And so I completely by accident ran across San Clemente Island goats and the males, the first thing that grabbed my attention is that the males have the lowest scent like offput of any goat breed. And so that got me interested and I started doing more research and they have a really fascinating history. I mean, at the time I wasn't married um, and I wanted something that was a size I could handle on my own. And while the males can get quite large with San Clemente goats, the females are only, I mean, I think my biggest female is somewhere between 50 and 60 pounds, and she's quite a lot bigger than most of my others. The males, like I said, I start really early and I halter train them. And they don't get, they don't get grumpy during rut season the way some breeds can. Mm -hmm. um, they, in fact, get a little too friendly. Uh -uh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they, they will cheerfully rub themselves all over you. Oh, nice. <laughs> Thanks for um, the stink. <laughs> but it doesn't, uh, I mean, bad. it doesn't, well, not only is it not as bad, it doesn't stick the way some breeds do. I mean, some breeds, that's how they get the girl's attention is that it's like a skunk. They'll like rub themselves on a tree and then that tree continues to have their smell for quite a while. So the females know there's a buck around. Mm -hmm. um, the San Clemente males don't do that. Like I don't have to burn my clothes after I get done handling the male. <laughs> that's always good. <laughs> The females birth really easily. They don't tend to have, you know, triplets and quads and, you know, huge, huge litters like some breeds do. Right. But they birth quite easily, which, again, was really attractive because at the time I lived in an area that didn't have a vet, like, anywhere. Mm. And they just seemed pretty easy to take care of, pretty interesting. Um, and so that got me looking at other endangered heritage breeds. Uh, I had already planned on looking at rabbits, uh, and so I got American chinchilla rabbits. And at the time I had backyard chickens, but then when I, when my husband and I got together and we got married, um, I sort of traded them in for, for uh, standard cochins, which are a large fluffy breed that are really very um, winter hardy. Yeah, um, I had had some other breeds that just didn't do very well. Yeah. Um, I, I make the joke all the time about silkies being really cute, but yeah, they don't. Not always. Cold, not right? always very <laughs> practical. Um, they don't, and and there's nothing. All the reasons that people keep silkies for, like their broodiness and the fact that you know they stay close to home, and cochins do the same thing. Um, but they don't get frostbite, and they don't lose their toes, and they, they don't need special care. And yeah, um, we recently just got a couple, two white ones and two black ones. They're, like, hiding under the slide there. But Silkies or cochins? Cochins. Oh. Yeah. Same babies. thing. They she, are babies. Little bitties. <laughs> she wanted the silkies real bad, but then, but then I read same thing. Like, she... We'd have to bring them inside during winter, and I don't want to. Oh, yeah, that. people have to have insulated barns and heat yeah. lamps. and It's yeah. just crazy. Again, so. I'm a lazy farmer. That's <laughs> one of the reasons I like heritage breeds is you just put them out and, you know, let them let them do their thing. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah, I guess the wilder they are, the more built they are for the environment. Yeah, the... You don't um, need as much help. The San Clemente goats have not been as hardy as I hoped. There's some discussion about I mean they're from off the coast of California mm. 
And there's some debates over what they can do for temperature and weather. Um, and because they're not a specialized breed, some of them have heavier coats and they seem to do better in colder climates. I know a lady in Wisconsin who does great. Um, but like the increase in rain has not been, it's been really hard on them. Yeah. And when fertilizer prices went up, a lot of places stopped fertilizing their pastures. So the hay quality here isn't as good. Um, I've had, you know, two separate vets talk to me about the fact that hay around here is basically empty calories these days. And so they've required more supplementing than I expected, um, which has been a little bit rough financially. Um, the soe, on the other hand, are really used to living in a rain-filled climate. We basically get a whole bunch of round bales. We put a giant tarp structure over them every winter in a different spot in the field and they just kind of burrow into it for the winter and that's hmm. that's how they stay all winter we they basically haven't they don't need any other housing oh really they just burrow into the middle of the pile they i mean they have other housing they just never use it um, <laughs> just eat their way into the round bale <laughs> they just well what we do is we stack them so you know you will have several of them and they just kind of eat their way through into the middle and then they kind of start in the middle and work their way out. And by springtime, it's basically just a pad mm -hmm. of hay. And then that's what they have all their babies on because they have all these nice nests kind of pre... <laughs> pre so their house is made of food. <laughs> like yeah, it's like a cheap version of a gingerbread house. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that's so cool. Um, so what was... Because ordinarily I would say, like, you need a building for it. But you have a building. They're just choosing... They're choosing the hay house. Yep, yep. I think it's, I, you know, it stays insulated that way, and, you know, they have really heavy coats at that point, and they just, that's just how it works well for them. So the really funny part is, for a while, I ran my sheep and my goats together mm -hmm. um, until I started needing to supplement the goats more, and the goats wanted absolutely nothing to do with the sheep. They just, like, they didn't bother them. They didn't, you know, pick on them or anything. They just, they were way too cool for those guys. Um <laughs> And then it got cold. And next thing I know, every like time it snows, there are these little clusters of sheep hanging out together because that's what they do. They, you know, if it gets too cold for them to stay, you know, warm on their own, they kind of bundle up in these little three or four. And out of every single bundle, there's a goat head. <laughs> <laughs> the goats were using the sheep as sweaters. <laughs> of course they were. They just wiggle their way in the middle. And the sheep, even though they've, you know, been very standoffish and arrogant with the sheep, the sheep are fine with it. You're just like, sure, you can come in. Oh, my goodness. We should um, probably tell the audience what supplementing means. Yes. Um, so normally heritage breeds just live off natural forage. They, you know, my sheep go out in pasture, but supplementing would be like we feed them hay in the wintertime. So with our goats, they aren't getting enough nutrients off even the hay that we're feeding them. And so we have to give them hay stretcher or grain or like when they're lactating, we give them quite a lot of grain because they need a lot of protein. Um, it can also mean, uh, so the lady I know in Wisconsin, her family like owns hay fields. And so she tests her hay. She knows exactly what they need. But the hay in that area doesn't have enough protein, so she supplements with big buckets of just like just protein minerals, and she just kind of leaves it in the barn, and they eat hay and grass and the protein buckets when they feel like they need it. And I think I may actually be the only San Clemente breeder I know of who feeds grain at all, um, because normally they're just so adaptive to live off nothing but vegetation. Um, it's just the vegetation here isn't what they need. And there's been much debate over this because there's a whole lot of, you know, no San Clemente goats do fine everywhere, except that there are like five or more breeders in Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, and almost all of them have trouble. So, really? but you know, and, and there's really nothing wrong with that. I mean, part of raising heritage breed animals or really any animals is finding ones that work in your area. Yeah, that's the hardest um, part. And like I said, some of them do very well. There's one who's been, his 
uh, lineage has been in Maine for quite some time. And so he grows this really heavy winter coat every year. But my other buck came from Nevada. Mm. <laughs> and, and he's real unhappy all winter. <laughs> so our plan actually is to thin things down so that we keep just the goats that are doing well, who are developing these heavy winter goats uh, coats, and who seem to be, you know, thriving. Mm. Um, what about the others? Where do, where do the others go? Um, I have two that are going to New York. They have a specialized bloodline, even for San Clemente goats. And the, there's a lady in New York who specializes both in fiber production in goats. Um, they also produce pretty good fiber, um, considering they haven't actually been bred for it. Hmm. And they are this specialized line that she's particularly breeding for. I have two bottle babies this year that are going to another lady I know because she does a lot of traveling to shows. She works for Meadery, and they do a lot of rent fairs, and they do a lot of, you know, craft fair type stuff. And she wanted a pair of goats that were used to people and used to being handled, and so they're going to they're gonna go be people goats. <laughs> <laughs> That's where um, the harness training comes in to do shows and stuff. Part of it is that, and part of it is I just want to be able to move them around easily. Um, the males, like I said, they're not unpleasant they don't get cranky but they do they'll have growth spurts in their horns mm. um, and they're like teenagers they can't kind of keep track of where their head is all the time so like one time and only once I had a buck who ran by me and he just had one of these growth spurts and he clipped me really hard with one of his horns and it wasn't because he meant to it was just that he lost track of where his horns were right. and halter training them really gives them a better sense of like spatial awareness of where their head is and it teaches them manners which none of them have here <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and we, we actually don't do grain here because Kara's worried about issues with their urinary tract because they're all weathers so yep. yeah yeah and, and there's a it's 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 not a serious issue but it's a non-zero chance and mm -hmm. she'd rather have it be zero yeah. Our males get hay stretcher. Our females only get grain when they're lactating, just because the energy production energy oh, yeah. is yeah. just so high. That they For the eat. audience, if you have goats, when they feed them grain, sometimes the males, they don't... Like, yeah, with females lactating, they definitely need it. But with the males, they don't need all that protein, and they could end up forming, was it crystals? Yeah. Like kidney... Not, not kidney stones, but in that neighborhood. Similar. Yeah, similar to kidney yeah, stones. Yeah, urinary, urinary tract stones. Are, so sheep do the same thing. Um, our sheep grain, because we have the male in with the females, we feed specialized sheep grain so that they get the energy they need and he's, he's not at risk of stones. Mm. But sheep can have the same issue. And interestingly, we, had, we have now had two males from the same line. Um, Goddard is our main ram. He's nine or ten years old at this point. Um, and he's fine. We've never had any trouble at all. Um, but we have had two younger rams that came from the same line. And they both passed away from bladder stones, but not the regular bladder stones that they get from uh, from grain. The, we, we actually sent them out to have them tested, and they came back as, we have no idea what these are. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, but they didn't respond to preventative medications so we've decided, I contacted the person that we got the second one from, and um, they had also had rams that, like, basically right after they sold us that one, they had rams that died from the same thing. Oh uh, so, you know, this is one of the hard parts about raising heritage breeds, is it's real hard to cull because, you know, you're worried about numbers. But when you end up with a line where all of the males are dying of bladder stones, you don't want to pass that along. So, right. um, so we, we won't be keeping any of his sons this year. We will be keeping his daughters. His daughters. The daughters don't seem to pass it along to the next generation. Hmm. But it's definitely one of the challenges of, of heritage breed raising is trying to find good genetics and continue to raise healthy animals instead of just breeding for the sake of breeding numbers. And, and it's kind of scary that... The kind of trouble that you get with these stones is it blocks the urinary tract and <clears throat> the animal just can't pee. Yeah. And pressure builds up and then things break and then... Kidneys die. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, it's real, real bad all around. 
So preventing is the best way to go. And there's sometimes people will feed goats grain and they're fine. They, they, there's this, what, what is it, ammonium? Ammonium chloride, that's in the minerals. Though. Ammonium chloride, it's in the minerals that we get for the goats that we now have to change. But, yeah. but there's, so there's basically, <laughs> there's, this, there's this stuff that breaks that stuff down and helps prevent stones in the males. And it's in our goat minerals. We get the brand with that. But now we have to change the minerals because we have sheep and goats mixed. And sheep cannot really do copper in the way that goats need to do copper. So we're going to have to have minerals with no copper so everybody can eat them. And then we're going to have to give the goats copper every six to eight months. Six to eight months, you yeah. said? Okay. Yeah. You can also give them, there's a sheep grain that has that already built into it. That's what we feed our soy. Um, and it's occasionally what we feed our goats to, depending on whether or not they're running together or separate at any given time. But it basically has all of the nutritions that goats need except for the copper. And then we just make sure that the, they get the copper separately. Okay. So We'll get the brand name from you. Yeah. Sure. Well, another issue with grain, though, is I have celiac and I can't touch it. So yeah. it makes it difficult for some Oof. things. Yeah. yeah. If we have, <laughs> like, for example, we had... Bird food that was gluten free, but it was extremely expensive, and we so just expensive. we couldn't keep going with it. So now we have uh, chicken feed and duck feed that is not gluten free, and Kara can't really handle it. I have so to wear like non latex gloves. I'm allergic to latex as well. So yeah, pretty much. I suit up before, and I can only do the front of the house. After that exposure, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, so even with the gloves, it's kind of a problem. And, so if you ask, like, what's Kara allergic to? The answer is yes. <laughs> so so it, we, we end up having to do some hazmat stuff. And I wear gloves when I handle the food because I don't want to track things from place to place. So it's, it's kind of a to-do. So what about you? Are you allergic to anything? Um, I'm allergic to nothing normal. I'm allergic to many, many things, but none of them are regular allergies. So I'm allergic to aloe. Which means, like, no soap, no shampoo, no hand cream, razor blades. Like, yeah, they put aloe in everything. They, they put really aloe in do. everything. So my mother actually has a whole... So she runs a specialty greenhouse normally. But she has a whole side business selling soap and hand cream that she started when I was in high school. Because I can't use any industrial products whatsoever. Oh, um, wow. So, like... <laughs> You know, it, when she retires, I'm doomed because I will never be able to use oh, no. I'm going to have to learn how to make soap or something. <laughs> um, I am allergic to rayon, uh, which is most of what you find in socks and underwear, so that's real fun. Huh. Uh, I am allergic. You're allergic to latex. I am allergic to nitrile, which is what they replaced latex gloves with because everyone else was allergic to latex. Oh, oh yeah, my. yeah. Uh, I am allergic to whatever makes Dawn dish detergent blue. Huh. Uh, I can use the free and clear stuff. I cannot use the blue stuff. That was last year's. I, I developed like one allergy a year, pretty much. Uh, it's and a that tradition. Was, that was that was last year's. I was doing dishes, and then all of it. Like I've used the same soap like for decades, literally. And uh, all of a sudden, my hands bubbled up, split open, and oh my gosh! Whoa, so severe. That was the end of that. Um, so my husband. The recipe. Uh, I think I just, I think it was just a development. Like I said, I just, I yeah. seem to develop one, about one new allergy a year. Huh. Um, oh, good heavens, what else? Um, there was something this year, but it was something really mild. Oh yeah, I, um, I wear my wedding rings around my neck because we discovered the day of my wedding that I was allergic to my wedding rings. What? <laughs> oh yeah, my hands like blew up and again cracked and started... Like, like silver or what uh, it's I made of? I don't know which one it is. We got them both to be hypoallergenic because I'd had issues with other metals. Um, hmm. But apparently it didn't work. Oh, so, no. yeah, put them on and had to take them back off like 10 minutes after I said my vows. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. I've got a problem with our... My problem's more... It's, it's not an allergy. With my wedding ring is I gained a lot of COVID weight and my hand changed and the ring was a little bit too small. It would just barely make it past my knuckle. But then once past, like, um, I've got the kind of hand that you can't use as a, uh, a magician because you can actually see light between the fingers. So once I get the ring past my knuckle, I'm good. 
But I, as I gained weight, my finger changed, and I got the ring off while I could. And then I, I kind of left it off because I'm, I'm working on dropping that COVID weight now, but I'm going to leave it off because I work on a farm, and I'm going to scratch it up and damage it. So I've got a silicone ring that luckily nobody in the house is allergic to. And I just, if something grabs it or catches on a silicone ring, it just breaks and then I'll get another one. Yeah. Well, the stone fell out of my engagement ring last week and we had to cut it off. So that was upsetting. Yeah. Because the, <laughs> it kept catching her skin. Yeah. And, and of course, so. and of course there's the fear that, Hey, did the stone fall into the dough? Oh because you did a big order that day <laughs> yeah and so we're like oh my god do I call everyone and be like scratch it all don't pay me and, throw and it all out then what she's do like do? oh <laughs> my god I found the stone oh my god <laughs> having <laughs> all day I'm like I don't know what to do I don't know what to do but luckily I found it and it was whew my, uh, my husband has a tungsten ring which of course you know breaks for nothing um, and so he takes it off for work every day so that he doesn't catch it on anything. And it has become like a, a workplace-wide joke that when he puts his ring back on, the day is over. <laughs> like, forget the clock. When, when Henry puts his ring on, like, everybody's done. <laughs> oh my goodness. So we were, we were going to ask, um, about, did you get, didn't you get your house at a similar time as us, like 2020? Yep. During um, COVID? We, we, we moved the, the weekend of the COVID shutdown. Really? We moved that's up. okay. Now, that's before us. We moved yeah. half our stuff. The shutdown went into effect, and nobody could tell us whether or not we were allowed to finish moving. <laughs> oh, man. That's brutal. <laughs> it made for a real fascinating first couple of weeks until they were like, okay, we've decided you can, you, you can move after all. So, so you had... A pretty like a pre-COVID normal home buying experience, and did you close before the shutdown? Um, we actually closed quite a bit before the house needed like the house needed a whole new septic system, and there was like the foundation was collapsing and needed a new beam, oh. and so that stuff had to get taken care of. Why, why didn't you walk away when you saw that? Because it was do really it? inexpensive. <laughs> <laughs> So even with the sellers fixing all that, it was... Did the sellers fix it? Or yeah. Did, oh, really? Yeah. So um, you had to fix it. Yeah. Um, wow. So we bought the house in January, and we didn't move until the COVID weekend, so... Um, which was, what, March? Yeah. Yeah. So it, yeah. it was about a three-month period. So how did you... Did you had, you'd been saving up, I guess. You, you mentioned you'd been saving for a house. Did you have enough to get the... So what yeah, we... the down payment, you got to do a septic system, which is crazy, and, and the foundation, that, that's heavy work. Well, what we did was we split the cost of the foundation with the buyers, and we worked it into the financing so that there was basically a separate escrow just to put the septic system in. Um, but it, because we have the pond, and there was the whole, it can't be too close to the well, and it can't be close to the pond we had to have a specially designed septic system put in but we got somebody who was able to do that um and they were able to get it in again before covid luckily yeah um but the yeah the septic system that was there was just a 500 metal gallon tank that had a board across the top. Oh, my God. <laughs> and they, yeah, they were like, I don't understand why no one has fallen into this yet. Like a DIY. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's what septic systems used to look like. Um, but there was no leach field. There was no proper septic system. There was no nothing. So. Oh, wow. Um, and when we had the house inspected, instead of having a housing inspector, we had, so my father-in-law's best friend was a contractor. Um, and I was hmm. like, I have bought houses with housing inspectors before, and they tend to miss really important things. Like, yeah. they just want to see the surface stuff. Yeah. So we had a contractor look at it instead, and we got a much better idea of what was going to need to be fixed. Mm -hmm. um, you so want an inspector that is either some kind of engineer. Yeah. Uh, like, we did one, we had one that was a structural engineer, mm -hmm. and that's when we first learned about frost heaving. <laughs> Good stuff. <laughs> or you want a con or you want an inspector that is a retired contractor or something of that nature, but 
or just the contractor. Just bringing a contractor with you is a great idea. Yeah, that actually was the funny part was we, he, he actually was retired. He hasn't worked in years. And when he did work, he was really in demand and he was really expensive. Oh, I'm yeah. sure. Um, so uh, we asked him to look at the house and he agreed. And so we went up and he looked around. And the main issue was the, the support beam in the front of the house that needed replacing. And uh, so he looked at it and then he said, you know, well, you're probably looking at about $5,000 to get this fixed. I mean, you can probably get somebody to do it cheaper than me, but you know, nobody else is going to like do a good job or take less time. And right. we were like, that's great, but you're retired. And he's like, yeah, you know, one more isn't a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he came up and he jacked up the house and he fixed the beam for us. Oh, wow. so, nice. that's great. <laughs> um, so we got those two things done. You know, we, there's an office, well, it's now the office downstairs. Um, but originally it was a, you know, small bedroom. The upstairs had to be completely gutted down to the studs. Funny. That took us like two years. <laughs> oh, how so, old is the house? I don't remember. Uh, the main section of the house is 19, uh, sorry, 1861. Okay. Um, and then they like, they put additions and then they put additions on the additions. Of and then they put, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's actually a very large house square footage wise. Um, but because it's just kind of a mass of additions, the space is not always a great setup. Yeah. We have a similar problem. We technically we should have more space than we do. <laughs> yeah, it's weird setup. There's a room that, but you have to go into a room to get to a room. It's yeah. like, mm, is it really four bedrooms? I don't think so. <laughs> and we use the Lego unit of measurement. Like we have a bunch of Lego sets that. We haven't built Lego in a while because now we have animals and our time is just taken up. But we we actually were measuring the house at one point by how many Lego sets we could display in the house. <laughs> and it's like, I, we're going to have to get shelves or something or built-ins. We yeah, don't have no enough space. Shelving. Where are we going to put this Lego set we're going to make? It, <laughs> it, it, so it just kind of, it's, it's funny how like something as silly as that can make you look at your house critically and <laughs> think about like how you would store things. Yeah. Well, part of the other issue too is the lady who lived there um, before was like in her 90s and she couldn't do stairs anymore. Hmm. And so her children had moved everything onto one floor. So what was supposed to be the, you know, the second bedroom on the ground floor, which was the bigger bedroom, had been torn out and turned into a laundry room slash handicap walk-in shower. Um, and the second floor abandoned. Second floor was abandoned, and the basement was abandoned, which is where the washer dryer was. Um, and so it became, like, there's this enormous room that, like, has a washer and dryer and a shower in it. And then, like, half the rest of the room is completely empty. empty. Um, that was, like, High Street. Our old house was like that. It was, like, a half bath, but the laundry was in there. So it was, like, this massive room with a little toilet and a sink and then the washer dryer. Yeah. Weird. <laughs> yeah, in the long run, so there's a half bath downstairs too. And in the long run, our plan is to pull out everything from the half bath, move that into the laundry room, and then the half bath is off the kitchen. And so we're either going to rip that wall out and make the kitchen bigger, um, or we're going to turn it into a walk-in pantry. We haven't so, decided yet. So were you just living like, like the previous owner on the first floor while the second floor was stripped to the studs? Was that why you lived there, or was that before you got in? Uh, well, there's also an addition off the off the basement, um, so we use that too because we could do stairs, um, and that has become the largest room is one of the the two rooms downstairs um, that has become my husband's. He would say collection room. Uh, <laughs> I would say hoarding mess. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then there's a back corner room that we just refer to as the project room because that's just kind of where if I'm hatching chicks, they go there. If I'm putting seedlings in, that's where they go. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of a mess room. <laughs> uh, the, the end goal is that they, so they used to have a, like a wedding prep business there. The room that is now his game room is used to be like a sewing room and she modified wedding dresses. And then the back room was how they would, they, they did uh, wedding bouquets. 
Um, and so there's running water and there was a walk-in cooler. And so in the long run, what we'd really like to do, if we can ever find the time and the money, um, right. is strip that all out and turn it into a downstairs kitchen. Um, so that, you know, kind of like this, we can actually get it licensed um, and do, yeah. you know, things like, I, I use, one of the things that people have asked for a lot from us have, has been like how to cook with honey hmm. um, because we haven't used white sugar in like three or four years at this point. Um, and so I've been looking at doing like baking classes for using basically as many local ingredients as possible, like honey instead of sugar and duck eggs instead of chicken eggs because they make really good baked goods. They really do. Um, <laughs> and, you know, like some local grain companies, um, if we can come to summer. Main grains. Main or grains. Or ones. <laughs> yeah. Um, main grains does really good stuff, but... I'm very pricey. Yeah, they are. Like, I, I bake so much that I just can't afford the quantity that I would have to shell out for their, their flour. But for some of their, like, specialty grains, I, I love those. I mean, you can't, you can't beat them. I, I don't think we got to where you're from originally. Um, I am from Maine, born and raised. Um, I grew up in Turner. Oh, okay. um, oh, we've been there. Yeah, that's and where Ricker Hill is. Sorry. It is. It is <laughs> Ricker Hill's. Um, my mother actually still lives in Turner. She owns Hummingbird Farm, which is a specialty greenhouse. She grows, like, clematis. And she's where I got my, like, educational talk about things that I'm, <laughs> that I'm fanatical about uh, tendency. Because um, she travels all over and convinces people that clematis are awesome. So I travel <laughs> all over and convince people that goats are awesome. Yeah. Um, and she also is the reason that I was sort of brave enough to, you know, give up my <clears throat> quote-unquote real-life career and try doing this full-time um, because I was like, man, if she could do it with two kids, then I should be able to do it without kids. So my husband is originally from Massachusetts, but only till he was about eight, so I try not to hold it against him. Yeah. <laughs> <You know. laughs> um, but uh, so I... Moved around a little bit. Um, I went to grad school in Massachusetts. Nice place to visit. Wouldn't want to live there. I, I overstimulate too, too easily, and there are like just way too many people and way too many cars. Oh, definitely. My brother, on the other hand, absolutely loves it. Um, he's he became city boy, and I'm just I'm not. I, I am cut out for rural living only. That's common in Maine. We Kara and I reached like I, th I think it was. Rhode Island was like such a massive concentration of people that we're like, we're done with people. We're done with large crowds. We're, we want to go to a place where that physically can't happen. So we, we came back to Maine. <laughs> I mean, I guess it could happen, but I really hope not. <laughs> yeah. well, Maybe if you go to Portland, but we don't go there. <laughs> the, the worst you get in Maine is you go or to Target. the... You go to the store, that's the only store of its kind for 30 miles, and everybody goes there. Like, everybody goes to the same Hannaford. Everybody goes to the same general store. And then you'll have a crowd. But aside from that, you pretty much got a lot of elbow room. The glorious thing about being self-employed or freelance, though, is that I can make sure to go to the grocery store when everyone else is at work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's very important. So um, and we, we don't go to the grocery store very often anyway. I mean, we raise most of our own meat, and we what we don't, we get from a local butcher, and we get our vegetables. We either grow them or we get them from the farmer's market. We did a farm share for a while, but that just got to be really inconvenient. So I um, bought a house on the coast, and then... I got back together with the guy I eventually married, so we got rid of the his house and the her house and bought in our house here in Windsor. So, why did you decide on Windsor? Was there a specific reason, or just um, it was available? Well, part of it was that it was available. Part of it was keeping my husband, you know, reasonably close to his work, and part of it was that my in-laws are getting up there in years and he didn't want to be more than an hour from them in case they ever needed anything right i mean i would have been perfectly happy going to the county but <laughs> he's he's far more social than i am so gotcha 
I used to do a lot of work with people, and my joke was that by the time I got out of work, I just I didn't want to people anymore. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. totally understand that one. So I guess I guess it, I feel like the answer to this question is in your previous answers, but when you got the farm, the previous owner was not a farmer. So did you have to do all your fences from scratch? Did you have to? Yeah. What about your buildings? To... What about your barns? What about your? So the barn was there. There was a shed down back that used to be their garden shed. There, the whole back pasture, you, if you look at it on Google Maps, you can actually see the outline of where their gardens used to be. They had these <laughs> massive gardens that they grew the flowers that they made the bouquets out of. Hmm. And of course, they're all totally overgrown now. But they had a gardening shed down back. We had that hauled up next to the pond for the birds. Our waterfowl all kind of live on the pond. so. Um, and actually, our chickens do right now because we had a fisher move into our barn up close to the house. So, oh, no. um, so we've moved the chickens for the moment. You're They're sheep so are mad. We our our brand new today sheep are not adjusted yet. No. They are they sitting are, outside the window. It's always the girl expressing too. their displeasure. Yeah, just ah. <laughs> the boys are just like, oh, whatever. The girl, it's always the girl, because we do have two girl goats, and Emily's the loudest, and she'll tell you if she's angry, so. Yeah, our sheep are kind of the same. I mean, our sheep don't make a lot of noise, period. I mean, like, even if they're in danger, like the lambs. I lo when I first got the soe, I lost a lamb. Really? And I put out a notice and I said, look, I don't know what's happened to this lamb. You know, she might've gotten out onto the fence somehow. Like if anybody sees a lamb running around, you know, could you just let me know? And somebody said, well, if she was in trouble, wouldn't she be yelling? And I was like, no, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so I like, don't make any noise. So I found her two days later. She, remember I told you that we have these big round bales. And, mm. So she had gotten, she had apparently decided that she was too cool for like the main area everybody else was eating on. So she'd gotten around behind the bales, oh chewed herself a hole that was like smaller than you would ever imagine, <laughs> got herself in there and then got caught up in bale of twine oh and no. couldn't figure out how to back out. Um, I have, I don't even remember how I finally managed to find her. I just like, Oh and so, gosh. you know, a matter of just kind of reaching in there and untangling her and <laughs> untangling her by feel and, you know, pulling her out wow. again. But she never made a sound. Um, wow. Because they're basically still wild sheep. And if you're distressed and you holler, you're going to summon predators. Oh, right. But when feeding time comes around, the moms <laughs> make a lot of racket because there's a whole lot of, you know, which kid is mine and... They basically all, one female will start it, and then the other ewes will just kind of pick it up. And they'll kind of all be scattered around, and you'll see babies, like, you know, flying in every direction, you know, going to going to dinner time. And then Goddard, who, like I said, is our big male, makes no sound except that every once in a while he'll go, <clears throat> <laughs> He sounds like he's been, like, smoking two packs of non-filters for the last ten years. <laughs> it's just this deep guttural, like, <clears throat> Where our goats are just like very talkative when it comes to going to bedtime and they want their treats. You know? hear them go, so I go, Frickens, we'll do that. <laughs> That's actually really interesting too. Our bottle babies make racket when they think that it should be feeding time. And we have one goat named Petal. And Petal is the yeller. And the others are just kind of like, eh. Whatever. Yeah, they don't make much noise either. They're just... <laughs> Yeah. The funny thing is, is that not only is Petal the one that makes all the noise, because she, she was not bottle-raised, but she's the one who looks the most like a domestic goat. She's heavier built, she's heavier boned, she's bigger in the hips, whereas San Clemente goats normally are very, they're literally described as being deer-like. They have these really fine bone structures, they have really thin legs, they have really lean builds. Like, to the point where people have looked at Petal and been like, are we totally certain that she's, like, a completely implemented goat? I'm like, yeah, she's just, she's just an eyeball. But it's interesting, too, that she also acts more like a fully domesticated goat. Um, and, yeah, the babies, oof. Mm. Babies are, you know, 
feed me, do this. Oh, <laughs> our youngest goat, uh, Lucan, he he'll actually he he does the trick where he's eating or sleeping or something, and everybody else leaves to go somewhere else. He wakes up, he's by himself, and he just screams like. Bloody murder. I'm alone. I'm alone. Somebody fix this. And then the other goats are like, no, we're over here now. And so he has to go. But he does the, he does the, I'm, my head is stuck in something. I'm about to die kind of scream. Every time he and, screams, I come running out. Yeah. Are you okay? Just because he's lonely or because they all left him. He uses the emergency. It's like, this is an emergency channel. <laughs> You're not supposed to use this channel. For inconveniences. So the funny thing is, is that, so San Clemente goats don't get stuck very often. Um, they might do it once, and then they figure it out, and they don't do it anymore. Hmm. They don't yell when they're stuck most of the time. Uh, I had, I only ever had one doe who got stuck repeatedly, um, and she wasn't very bright. And she would just sit there and just, like, oh, like head down and just, yeah, I did it again. The geese would scream bloody murder until I came and let her out. Oh, really? Yeah, really? The, the geese huh. are like our yard enforcers. Like the rabbits got out once, like somehow the latch didn't get latched and then the wind blew the door open and so the rabbits like all through the, the mm. pen. And the geese went ballistic. <laughs> wow. I and saw I, a video that they're good guard animals. They're good guard animals, but they, they really are. They, are. they are like the yard bouncers. Like, I came out and I was like, what's going on? And they literally flapped their wings at the rabbits. <laughs> Get that inside. They're like, they don't belong here. Um, geese are monogamous, and this is going to sound funny, but like consent is really important to them. Huh. So it's not to ducks. No, it is no, not. Ducks do so not care. They don't care. They'll So yeah. Muscovy are Muscovy are, you know, less <laughs> aggressive than some breeds, but they're big, you know, and so every once in a while you'll get a female that kind of squeaks in protest. Mm -hmm. And the geese will immediately run over and grab him by the tail and pull him off. Oh wow. <laughs> if there are two ducks fighting, the geese will break it up. Really? <laughs> Are the geese aggressive to you? No. No. They're not aggressive to any of the animals as long as the other animal. And they're not even as aggressive when they're behaving. not behaving. They're right. just, like, they just pull them apart. What kind of geese do you have? Um, we have American buffs, okay. uh, also on the Livestock Conservancy list. They're, they are considered a medium-sized goose, but only because their bodies are so heavy. Um, they're not very tall. Um, hmm. Very pretty colored. Um, so no flying. Uh, once in a while they'll get airborne by accident and then they will like totally freak out because they can't figure out, it's like the old, um, uh, oh, what was the old television show? American Hero? Greatest American Hero? Greatest American Hero, yeah. You know, yeah. he could fly but he couldn't land. Right. Um. So he'd crash into stuff. So that's what they do. They like, every so often I'll, I'll, I'll hear this like terrified sound and I look out and one of them's gone airborne for a little bit. <laughs> oh You're like, I don't know what to do. What just happened? <laughs> Um, it tends to happen in the winter a lot because oh. they'll take baths and then they'll flap their wings to dry off so they don't get cold. Mm. And then they go airborne by accident. <laughs> uh, the males don't usually, but a couple of my smaller females, and like if we have young ones, um, they'll occasionally go airborne. But yeah, they don't, they do not enjoy it. No. Um, so they wouldn't like fly away or something. No. Uh, even when they do, it's really short distances. And like I said, they they do not enjoy it in any way, shape, or form. What am I doing up here? I'm not supposed to be up here. They are very, um, they do not like change. Mm. Like to the point where if I put new sawdust in their house, they won't go in it for several hours because like that's new. It's like the ducks. Our ducks don't, they don't mind the new bedding, but... If we move furniture around, they're not a fan. Oh, geese are mm. even worse. Oh, like mm -hmm. normally I let them out in the morning and my husband puts them in. If he's away and I put them in, they will they will get really angry. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Like this isn't how this is supposed to go. He all he has to do is walk down, and they will all immediately just file into the house. Really. If I walk down, I have to like I have to like get a stick and like shoo them in, and they'll break for the pond. And 
Oh, yeah. It's all sorts of, yeah. All Our contract specifically states that he is the person <laughs> to put us to bed. <laughs> so there was a time I was going down later, and they didn't like that either. And so they finally figured out that if they joined forces, they could actually get the door open. And oh. so now they just let themselves out in the morning. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's like on good. schedule? They, oh, they yeah. Don't... They don't go anywhere. But they will just open the door and they will just hang out in front of the goose house until I go down. Be like, you're late, lady. Um, <laughs> and it's it's funny because, like, they primarily live on grass and weeds and stuff, so I don't grain them. Mm-hmm. They have the pond right there, so they don't need water. But they will just hang out and wait for me to go down. But they aren't going to stay in any later than they are pretty sure that they should, you know. So, yeah, they, they are very schedule-oriented. So geese are great for mowing your lawn. Really? Uh, goats are too sporadic. They kind of go from place to place. Yeah. And, and goats want to eat everything else first before the grass. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that can be an issue. Um, yeah. But we have a lot of burdocks and stuff that encroach on our lawn, so we're kind of okay with that. Mm. But sheep will crop too low if you're not careful. Geese are perfect. They, they actually will get it at just about the lawnmower height, uh, they eat a lot of grass. Um, oh. I originally, my original property, I originally had four geese and two acres, two and a half acres, something like that. I had to mow the lawn once all year, the year after I got my my geese. Wow. And they just keep it to this, like, perfect <laughs> level point. So last year, I was walking them out, and I would just let them hang out on the lawn for a while, and they'd eat for a while, and then I'd put them back. And then it rained. And, of course, the geese don't care if it's raining, but I care if it's raining. Right. Uh, So next thing I know, I have a goose on my front steps screaming outside the door because I haven't come to get them and put them out of the (laughs) (laughs) It literally just, like, I got over the fence somehow or under the fence or something and just walked up to the house and, like, just got up on the deck and yelled at the door. (laughs) So yeah, they are the enforcers. Even on the humans, they they enforce the schedule. Oh yeah, absolutely. We are we we are not you know humans or owners or anything. We are we are food bringers at, right. at best of days. We are the food bringers. Yes. So what we kind are of stuff? Human, we are human servants the rest of the time. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So what kind of stuff do you do to try to monetize the farm? Do you have any way to? Um. Honestly, we have not been as good about that as I, I wanted to be. Um, like I said, we need to get the downstairs done, the upstairs, the upstairs, so that we could move upstairs, and so I could have an office. Took so much longer than we expected it to, and then when we started running into issues with the goats and nutrition stuff, that got real expensive real quick. So eventually, we do hope to get the kitchen done. I do a lot of freelance writing for a number of homestead magazines. We do livestock sales. We do talks for fairs and for homesteading groups. And, you know, we do some uh, community stuff with some local libraries. We don't really make a lot of money off that, but we get, you know, exposure places we wouldn't otherwise. So lots of, what do they, what, what they call it, the, the side hustle? Lots of, lots yeah. of, lots of side hustles? Lots, lots of side hustles. <laughs> And it's, I, I will say, it's getting harder. I mean, during COVID, people were really, there was a surge in homesteading interest, and there were people that wanted to buy goats and sheep and rabbits and chickens and geese. And there were a lot of new people coming into the state, and then people realized that homesteading is kind of hard. Um, yeah. And all of a sudden, there were sales of <laughs> sheep and goats <laughs> and chickens. And, and unfortunately, there's um, heritage breeds can be hard because you have to worry about genetics. The other thing uh, about heritage breeds is, and it depends on the heritage breed, there are some heritage breeds associations that are run by farmers, and there are some that are run by animal conservationists, and they have very different outlooks. So for instance, people who are interested in American chinchilla rabbits, they worry about their body conformation, they worry about making sure they're healthy, they make sure they have good hips, they make sure they have good legs, Um, and that's a very show or farm orientation. But there are some associations that are really just concerned about numbers. And they don't know a lot, 
like they've never had other breeds of whatever the animal is. So they don't know how body conformation works. They don't know how healthy animals work. And they're very worried about getting new breeders and new numbers and, you know, increasing the, the awareness of the animal, which is very important. And I don't mean to downplay that. But in order to do that, they sell their animals very cheap. Hmm. So if you're buying a purebred endangered animal and you're paying $200 for it, that's the same prices that you'd get going to auction. So the types of breeders you're getting are people who would go to auctions. They're not people who are experienced with goats or with sheep or with whatever the animal is. So you end up with, first of all, breeders who are breeding the good, the bad, and the ugly and selling them all the same. Right. They don't get that, you know, this animal is a $400 animal and this animal should go in your freezer. <laughs> like This animal should not be bred. So it can be difficult when you do have somebody who's breeding for healthy animals and good body conformation and milk production. It can be really hard for them to compete with these people who are selling what people think of as the same animal for 50 bucks or 200 bucks instead of 500 bucks. But I can't afford to put more money, you know, if I have 10 lambs, but only five of them are keepable and it's cost me X amount to produce those five, I have to get a certain amount of money for them in order to make a living. I can't get that quantity for those five if someone else is basically giving them away. Yeah. My quality is higher, uh, and I don't mean to pat myself on the back. Oh, um, go right ahead. <laughs> but, well, I mean, but there are some people who are producing really high quality, like by accident, basically, like they have really good stock. And there are some people that are producing high quality, but like they have enough financial capability to sell at a loss because they can afford it. Mm. There are lots of animal conservationists that are, and I, I hate to generalize, but they're upper middle class or lower end wealthy home people that like this is a hobby and they can afford to raise animals just to raise animals. Like, right. It's not a business for them. And, and I think, you know, there's a lot of discussion about what the difference is between a, hom a hobby farm and a homestead. And I think that's really what makes the difference. Like, do you have to make a living off this in order to keep going? Yeah. Um, and there are people that just don't. And I, I don't mean to say there's no place for that. I don't mean to say that, like, they shouldn't. But when they undersell people who do need to make a living, that's why we have less and less farmers every year. Yeah. Why raise chickens to sell eggs for $5 a dozen when someone else is giving them away because they don't care if they make money off it or not. Why raise goats um, or do education on it or whatever when somebody else is just going to, like, you're, you're not going to make ends meet. You're just going to keep sinking money into animals that aren't making anything. And that can be really rough, and it's getting harder because the interest is waning now that people are going back to work and that, you know, people are realizing that things are hard and it, it was kind of a fad thing for a while. And I don't, I don't think the fad is entirely going away. I think there are still people coming to Maine. There are still people interested in homesteading. There are people interested in expanding homesteading. But I had, I had a request for 30 goslings this year. I knew I was going to get ghosted by somebody. I hatched, I put in 28 eggs. I hatched out 21. Half of those 21 didn't get new homes really? because people just didn't show up. That's terrible. I had a lady who wanted to buy a goat for me, and I said, great, if you want to hold him, it's a $100 down payment. And she said, but what happens if something changes in the next few months and I can't take him? And I said, well, then mm -hmm. I'm really sorry, but like I can't afford that if something happens to you in the next three months that I've already turned away four other, you know, four other breeders. Farmers just can't function that way. Right. So she didn't take it. I had a wait list for 10 lambs this year. Not a single one of them has gotten back to me. Seriously. So I have 12 lambs right now um, that I have. I mean, two of them, like I said, two of them have that genetic flaw. We won't keep them. We won't sell them. Um, Even as weathers? Uh, weathers are more likely to develop stones faster. So they're, right. you know, they're, they're going to 
they're not going to make it anyway. Like about a year, they're going to die no matter what. So why that make them? Makes me sad. It, it <laughs> does. It does me too because one of them, um, one of them really has a kind of an extra special personality and an extra special look to him, and, and so I'm really I'm especially bummed out about that one. But the fact is, I don't want him to suffer when he's yeah. older. So, you know, I there are certain groups out there that give me a hard time about the fact that, you know, we call animals and that we eat them. But we have only ever called animals that had a genetic flaw that was going to cause them sickness or pain later in life. Yeah. Because I don't want them to suffer and I don't want anything to go to waste. So. Right. You gotta and, do what you gotta do. But, you know, we also had four of the best, well, three, we had four really good rams born this year, and three of them are stunning. Three of them are the best Soe rams, not only that Goddard has ever produced, but that I think I've ever seen anywhere. Hmm. Can't find a home for them because the people who originally wanted them have backed out. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so anyway, yeah, that was a little bit of a rant there, but financially. We do what we can where we can. Um, we are probably going to be downsizing a lot this fall. Again, provided we can find homes for things, mm-hmm. because we don't we don't want to risk getting to the point where we can't afford to take good care of the animals. Right. Right. So we need to make sure we stay at a level where, you know, we're running pretty much off my writing income and my husband's you know full time income. And we want to make sure that we can provide proper vet care and proper feed care and, you know, the price of hay is a lot. It's <laughs> always going every which way. Yeah. And so we want to make sure we can take good care of everyone in the way that, you know, they need to be taken care of. Just because they're heritage breeds doesn't mean that they're entirely self-sufficient. Right. So making them heritage breeds and more wild, does that make them less friendly? Or are they more, does it depend on how they're raised? Maybe um, it, it varies a lot, um, and it depends on the. It depends on what animal you're talking about. I mean, my American buffs, we had four that we raised, f- kind of you know by hand, um, and they're very friendly. Even when they're nesting, I can pat them without getting chewed up. Oh really? And then we have two females that we were given, and them not so much. <laughs> mm. uh, and they're young, very much kind of take the lead from the parents. American chinchilla rabbits, the males are giant love bugs and the females are crazy. <laughs> As most are. <laughs> I, once they've had a litter, they're not bad, but man, the young the young females. Every time someone said, I just want a pet, I'm like, take a male. Like, trust oh, me. Right. Trust me on the this. The hormones. <laughs> the males are just like, they want to be patted, they want to be loved on. Like, they're, they're very sweet. I used, to, I used to say that I could gender check an animal just by picking it up. <laughs> um, and about 90% of the time I was right. Oh, wow. Did um, she attack me? She did not. It is a he. <laughs> that's, that, that was pretty much it, yeah. The goats are very different personality-wise. So Petal, like I said, Petal is the diva. Petal, you know, wants her attention and her snacks and everything else. Violet is probably the opposite end of the spectrum. She was evacuated out of the California fire zones a couple of years ago. Oh, wow. And her nerves have really just never recovered. Mm. It's a shame because she's an amazing milker. But she's very skittish. She's very nervous. She mm. doesn't. She was also transported in small closed spaces, so she doesn't do well with feeling constrained. Oh, yeah. um, and then the sheep are like cats. They will follow me around. They will bum food if I have it. <laughs> um, but they don't really want to be touched unless they decide they want to be touched. Okay. Um, so they're... They're standoffish, but they're also very curious. So, so. Well, I think that wraps up our time. Well, thank you very much. This has thank been great. Thank you. We so appreciate do, it so much. Do an outro for her farm. Yeah. If you want more information, go to the website. It's Saffron and Honey. Saffron and Honey Homestead.com. Yes. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube under Saffron and Honey Homestead. We were real lucky. The name was available across the board. Nice. Um, and if you want other information, you can email us at saffronandhoneyhomestead at gmail.com. And we'll pop all that into the description yep. for the podcast. And we'll link it through our Instagram, Facebook, whatevers. But awesome 
awesome talking to you. I have so much knowledge. <laughs> I can lot. go on for days. I can bore people like you wouldn't believe. Oh, <laughs> no, it's good. definitely not boring. It's always good to hear about other farms oh, and how yes. other people are doing things, and it yeah. kind of helps us feel better about what we're doing. Like we're not doing things wrong. Everybody's got fences that go this way and that way. Everybody's got. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, every single person I've ever done a talk with or an interview with will make a comment about, I say, what's the one thing you wish you'd done differently? And they say, I really wish I'd gotten all my fencing run before I got animals, but it's never going to happen. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like no one ever has their fencing entirely run. Everyone's always moving fencing because they realize they could have done something different. Yeah, it's just, oh, that's, yeah. that's how it goes. Always fixing right. something. Oh, so yeah. We will catch you all next week. So have a good whatever you're doing. Yep. We'll see you next time. Thanks very much.